0: Green Dreamer is supported by our listener patrons. To support the show starting at $2 per month, you can head to greendreamer.com support to learn more. This episode is also supported by our sponsor, Osea Malibu, the original plant-based, results-driven skincare line. I was really excited to share this with you because I've actually been using Osea's skincare myself for the past few years, and I love it. The Hyaluronic C Serum specifically has been helping to keep my skin hydrated in this dry climate in California. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to oseamalibu.com slash dreamer, and the discount will automatically be applied when you check out. Again, that's OSEAMalibu.com slash Green Dreamer.
1: The issue for me is that biochar exists already. We're not waiting for anything. The technology is out there. The finances are coming along. Some of these other things, we just don't know when they're going to be ready, how much they're going to be able to do, what the economics behind it are. And they don't seem to have a lot of co-benefits, which biochar does.
0: That was Kathleen Draper, the author of Burn, using fire to cool the earth. And she's also a researcher and communicator that focuses on biochar, which is a highly stable carbon material that can be used for things like improving soil health, reducing flooding, purifying the air, and more. Stay tuned as we're about to explore how we can redirect biological waste, a lot of which currently just ends up in landfills, towards the creation of biochar to turn that source of waste into a resource why we need to talk about biochar more and its potential for helping to restore our carbon cycle, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Hey, it's Kamea Shane and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word.
1: So I think my particular eco-epiphany, as I call it, happened after I became a mom 18 years ago. I did grow up on a farm, but I wouldn't necessarily say that I was actively working to help restore and regenerate the environment. And then about 10 or 11 years ago, I went back to school to do a master's in sustainability. And during that time, I was reading deeply on different potential solutions. And to be honest, the only one I could really understand was biochar because it it had a um, sort of an agricultural bent. But I also found that it's an ancient technology. So it wasn't over my head and I was really inspired by it. So from that point on, I shifted my career and focus to biochar.
0: So the premise of your book titled Burn starts off by saying that in order to rescue ourselves from climate catastrophe, we need to radically alter how humans live on earth. We have to go from spending carbon to banking it, end quote. Carbon dioxide often is demonized when we talk about climate change, But I think the reality is that carbon isn't bad. It's our disruption of the previously established balance of nature and this new imbalance of spending more than we're banking carbon that has become problematic. To give us a background before we segue into the role of biochar, can you share a big picture overview of what our carbon cycle is and the primary ways that we've disrupted that cycle?
1: Right, so the carbon cycle, as we learn about it when we're kids, is basically when plants absorb carbon dioxide during their lifetime, then they die and usually that carbon goes right back into the atmosphere. What we're doing right now is we're mining the fossil carbon that was created and banked millennia ago from dinosaurs and the environment that dinosaurs lived in. So we are taking that stored carbon from the ground and putting it up into the atmosphere where it's just overheating the planet.
0: And there are also, I guess, ways that we're burning down trees and deforesting our lands and the ways that we're going about agriculture too, right, that are contributing to this disruption.
1: Correct. Yeah, we've, we've taken out a lot of the, the topsoil carbon as well as some of the deeper down stuff, which we hear about it from the fossil fuel side of things. But that's right. Our agricultural practices have really depleted the, the carbon stocks in our agricultural soils.
0: So continuing on, you say that a secret unlocked by the ancients of the Amazon for its ability to transform impoverished tropical soils into terra preta, and I'm sure I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, but um, fertile black earths points the way, end quote. So what exactly did the ancients of the Amazon discover and do to enrich their soils and consequently also enrich the biodiversity of all life on those lands? It's not actually
1: just the, the Amazonian, several indigenous cultures around the world in China and Japan and elsewhere. What they seem to have done is either through a design or by happenstance from their cooking styles and waste management practices, they turned this labile or short-lived carbon from plants and trees into long-term carbon so as one example i was in peru not too long ago and i was watching this cooking style which is called pachamanca and it means soil kiln they cook over a pit that they dig and at the end of it they have a lot of charcoal left and my understanding is that what they did after making these fire pits is they would probably bring out their pottery that had kind of human waste in it and dump it in the fires or any other food waste. And this was a way probably to get rid of the odors so animals wouldn't come in, but it was also enriching the the charcoal or what we are now calling biochar with nutrients. And so they would do this over and over and over again. And the soils then built up huge stores of carbon, very recalcitrant or long-lived carbon, which boosted the fertility of those soils to the extent that even now those soils where this was practiced are four to five times more fertile than the surrounding rainforest soils, which are notoriously poor in terms of fertility. And and they are actually mining those terra preta soils, uh, digging it up and selling it to people because they are so fertile.
0: Oh, wow. So, I mean, the Amazon rainforest is known to be one of the most biodiverse regions and ecosystems on on Earth. Does part of that have to do with the ancients of the Amazon manually applying and using biochar to enrich the soils there?
1: I'm not sure what we could make that claim, but the claim that they do say is that because of this practice, the population of humans was able to grow because they were able to grow food on those soils versus what would come out of the the uh, rainforest. All the fertility is above ground in the rainforest, except where they created these dark earth soils.
0: So how exactly is biochar created in terms of what, I mean, what sorts of raw materials are needed to be burned in that process?
1: So originally when people started looking into this, the focus was mostly on wood or crop residues. And that's still a huge area or biomass that can be used to make biochar but we are learning that there's a much broader range of things that can be converted from the short term carbon to a longer term carbon including human waste and livestock waste and food waste that is hard to compost so there's there's actually a very broad range of things that can be turned into biochar the one thing i would say i sometimes read out on social media is that people believe plastic or a municipal solid waste can be turned into biochar. And, and that is kind of where we draw the line. That's, that's not really starting with an organic material or a, or a
0: material that's going to produce something that's non-toxic. So essentially, it's really biological waste that can be turned into biochar and not like every waste that we put out there.
1: Correct. You can pyrolyze it. You can turn it into char, but we don't refer to that as
0: biochar. Right. And the thing is right now, too, we're sending a lot of biological waste that can be used as resource into our landfills where they're not really able to compost. So they're just emitting methane.
1: Yes. One of the things I'm researching in my state, because we just created regulations prohibiting any large scale generator of food waste that is a ton a week or more, they're no longer gonna be able to send it to the landfill. So one of the universities that I'm working with is looking at turning that into biochar and then understanding what kind of properties those particular biochars might have. Mm -hmm. And it may not turn out to be the best for soil because of salts or chlorine or things like that, but there's an increasing number of things you can do with it besides put it in the soil.
0: And is there a specific way that this biological waste has to be burned? For example, does it have to be burned at a certain level of temperature? Does it have to be burned over a certain number of hours or time in order to be turned into biochar? Or is basically all biological waste burned biochar?
1: So that's a really good question. Uh, there, There's kind of a spectrum. Uh, when you're just trying to dewater material, it's usually referred to as torrefaction. And that's what you do when you want to make charcoal. So anything under temperatures of around 350 degrees Celsius That's referred to as torrefaction, and you're usually doing it to maximize the amount of energy in the, the fuel. When we are trying to make biochar, you usually make it at temperatures from, say, 450 degrees Celsius to maybe 800 degrees. And it can be made from a number of different processes. One is called pyrolysis, and that's where there's no oxygen present. So imagine putting it in your oven and closing the door so you're really baking it. Then there's gasification, which is similar, but you have a little bit of oxygen flowing through it, and that is a decades-old technology. It is not like incineration, though, and there's often a lot of confusion. We're not burning something to ash here. Uh, we're, we're converting a large part of that CO2 that was absorbed during a plant's lifetime into the stable form of carbon, maybe up to 50%, depending on the temperature mm. used.
0: So how do you see this, I guess, being incorporated into our modern civilization in the sense that does this need to become a new way that we manage waste? So we have recycling facilities. So we also then need biochar creation facilities that will accept biological waste that maybe cannot be composted regularly and have proper facilities that can create the right conditions for this biological waste to be turned into biochar.
1: Yeah, I think we're starting to see a number of different business models evolve. One of which is what we call the Stockholm Biochar Project, where they were taking the city's green waste, the tree waste, and converting it into biochar. They were using the heat generated during the process to be put into the district heating system. And then that biochar they were making was being used for urban tree planting and for stormwater management. In the U.S., we are seeing more models that are related to organics management. So there are a number of large livestock Operations known as CAFOs that are considering carbonizing their manure because they just have so much of it. And the heat can generally be used in their operations as well. And we're starting to see more and more wastewater treatment plants considering carbonizing the sludge because there are so many restrictions on what you can do with that sludge. And there's odor problems and things like that. So for them, really, they're just looking at it as a waste mitigation play so they can reduce the volumes by 70 to 90 percent, again, dependent on temperatures. So the biochar is kind of a side stream uh, revenue. an afterthought, they're really looking at it more as a safe, way to reduce volumes of organic material.
0: Beyond storing carbon in this more stable form while also enriching soils as a natural fertilizer, I'm aware that there are some other applications of biochar as well. What are some of the other benefits and regenerative uses of biochar?
1: One of the ones that's getting a lot of play right now is using it to remediate soils. So not necessarily boosting fertility, although that's always nice, but there's a lot of toxic soils out there, either with heavy metals from industry uh, poor waste management practices or even some naturally occurring metals. So one example is in Peru, the cacao farmers, you know, that's what you use to make chocolate, have contaminated soils with uh, it has cadmium from the mining activities there. And they were about to lose their market share in Europe because of new legislation, which which dictated that the uh, cadmium levels had to be below a certain point. And they'd been given five years to resolve this problem, but they had found nothing really worked until some researchers started working with them to use biochar around the trees, existing trees. And they've been able to reduce the plant uptake enough so that they can still sell into the European market. So that's one area. It's also being looked at as a filtration mechanism for water, and that's displacing activated carbon, which is very effective but can be very expensive and very energy intensive to produce. So those are just a couple of other areas that are getting a lot of focus.
0: To reach this balance that we need to reach in terms of carbon in the atmosphere versus in the ground, do you think part of the reason why we we can go beyond just restoring diversity on our farmlands, reforesting deforested places and restoring degraded ecosystems, do you feel like the reason why we can, there's a lot of potential in bringing biochar into the picture as an added method of carbon sequestration would be because, you know, we have... We have not just only degraded our natural ecosystems, but we've also been digging up carbon stored in our grounds in the form of fossil fuels that have been there for millions of years that haven't even been a part of this natural carbon cycle in the biosphere for at least the past centuries.
1: Yeah, I mean, I always think farmers need to be shown the economics to use anything, whether it's biochar, or no-till, or whatever. And and that's, that's a hurdle right now because biochar is unknown to most farmers and, and expensive. But if you are looking at using it in more than just one scenario, so what we refer to as cascades, then it becomes something that farmers are are getting excited about. So whether you're able to feed it to livestock and then get it in the manure which smells less and pollutes less, or in this country we're not allowed to feed it to livestock. That's aimed at the um food chain. But if you are able to use it in your manure systems to reduce odors, your neighbors will love you. And that carbon is more stable. It's capturing more of the nutrients, so you need to use less fertilizer. And you're putting soil uh, car- carbon in the soil. And we're starting to hear more and more about different carbon markets that are looking at paying farmers for building soil carbon. And I think that's really going to shift the paradigm as well.
0: I believe the IPCC came out with a report saying that biochar is one of the most meaningful ways that we can address carbon emissions and draw down carbon. Why do you think it is that a lot of people who are very passionate about acting on climate change, why is it that so many people don't know about biochar? Like I didn't learn about it until I read Judith's work.
1: A lot of people in the industry are asking that question, but we were thrilled to read that report last fall that they did include it as one of about six negative emissions technologies that they do believe can have a significant impact. And that's really changed a lot of the level of interest in the industry. So we are seeing more and more people. But I do believe it's about education. And it has up until about two years ago, been an issue of supply. There just wasn't a lot of biochar out there that is beginning to change. So more and more people are interested in getting into the industry and understanding that we have to do a lot more outreach and educate people on what it is and why they should care about it. Just as an example, last week I was at the Drawdown conference in at Penn State, and so many of the people there had never heard of it until they read it about it in the book. So yeah, we just need people like you and others to help us tell the story.
0: Yeah. One of the things that really excited me and stood out to me is your vision that we can move wasted carbon resources to also shift urban infrastructures, such as buildings, roads, bridges, and ports, incorporating drawn down materials and components, replacing steel, concrete, polymers, and composites with biological carbon. So not only can we draw down carbon for agricultural purposes, we can also use this as the literal building blocks of our civilization. I'm curious, do you see this as a way for us to almost artificially create a man-made regenerative carbon cycle that can justify future emissions once this system is set up? Or do you see this as a creative way for us to deal with the imbalance we currently have and that we still need to shift towards a future where humanity is emitting zero emissions?
1: Yeah, maybe a bit of both. I think we need to find places to bank carbon beyond the soil because of the economics and because of certain limitations as to where you can put it. You know, it's going to come up It's going to be the landowners that ultimately decide if they want to put it in the soil. So we have to tell that story over and over again and persuade those people to do it. But when you're talking about putting it in building materials or other types of composites, then what we're starting to see is you can really kind of regulate that we put this kind of carbon in asphalt or concrete or other composites. And there's a lot of interest in doing that these days. Not only does it store carbon, but it can store some of the heavy metals that might be in things like biochar made from sewage sludge. So again, you don't necessarily want to put that sort of thing in the soil and putting it in asphalt or concrete is perfectly fine. So yeah, there's Mm -hmm. a lot of interest in doing that right now.
0: And to further the, the discussion around our best methods of carbon sequestration, what do you see as the primary differences between the effects that biochar can bring as a way of sequestering carbon compared to proposed geoengineering methods to maybe use giant machines to suck carbon out of the atmosphere?
1: Yeah, you mean like DAX or enhanced weathering? I think the the issue for me is that biochar... Exists already. We're not waiting for anything. The technology is out there, the finances are coming along. Some of these other things, we just don't know when they're going to be ready, how much they're going to be able to do, what the economics behind it are. And they don't seem to have a lot of co benefits, which biochar does. You know, we're not just talking about storing carbon, we're talking about restoring soils and landscapes and helping to adapt to climate change with stormwater management and things like that. These other ones, they sound very expensive, very, very pie in the sky right now. I mean, I hope they happen because we need all of these things to work. But I'd rather put my time and energy into something that's, you know, proven right now.
0: Right. I believe we're spending a lot of financial resources investing in these technologies. And what stands out to me here is that the use of biochar sees carbon as an active and vital resource that can be used. Whereas in my understanding, often in geoengineering, there's still a question of what they're going to do with the carbon sucked out of the atmosphere. And if it's not put to use, it then again becomes another wasted resource.
1: Indeed. Last week at the Drawdown conference, I was listening to some guys talk about pulling it out of the atmosphere and injecting it into old oil and gas wells. And I just thought, wow, <laughs> <It was laughs> what the implications of that are. But they were very excited about it. I, I just kept thinking, mm-hmm. okay. <laughs> Did you get to have
0: a discussion with them?
1: Yeah. You know, what's funny is they didn't talk too much about biochar at that conference. I know several others in the biochar industry were kind of perplexed at that. So I didn't really engage too much on that because I think my time is better spent educating people on you know what it is and why they might want to consider it.
0: Well, for now, most of the systemic approaches to addressing carbon in our atmosphere involve some sort of government intervention or policy. So, for example, the carbon tax and dividend or the cap-and-trade system, etc. But because of how politicized climate change has become, we're almost holding our breath at, the, at this point, unsure of whether government action is something that we can 100% rely on. What is the potential of biochar to appeal to people in agriculture and in the building industries now so that this can start to be a meaningful solution without anything holding it back?
1: I don't believe biochar needs regulatory support in general, but I think we're getting to a stage where the cost of biochar is really starting to come down and we are able to displace some more expensive ingredients that companies are all of a sudden getting excited about. So as just one example, we can displace something called carbon black, which is made from a fossil fuel and it's used in all types of plastics. If If we can use biochar displacing the carbon black for less money and it performs as well, if not better then companies are able to tell their sustainability story much better. And they're getting excited about that. So I I think regulatory will help in certain circumstances, such as California is interested in changing some regulations related to putting it in asphalt. And that would certainly boost if it was mandated. But I don't think we, we need it as much as some other industries might need regulatory support.
0: And sometimes when people talk about the topic of climate change, automatically there seems to be some sort of resistance among the audience. What has your experience been educating people about biochar? Are you finding that there is also resistance or are people generally very receptive to the idea of its application?
1: I have definitely uh, noticed that. I come from a very conservative family, and what I've learned is that the framing is really critical, and we do not need to use the climate change frame all the time. Mm. As I said, we can use the frame of waste mitigation or boosting soil fertility or all sorts of other things that trigger people much more so than climate change does. So it's important to know what your audience cares about, and then play to that. So here's one example, our waters, I live near a lake, and all of the lakes around here are heavily uh, impacted by excess nutrients. But biochar is something that can be used to to harvest those nutrients. And then it takes the phosphorus out. And then you can use that biochar as a fertilizer because you put some nutrients in and you've helped heal the lakes. So even if those people are, you know, on the other side of the uh, political aisle, they care about these lakes. And when I frame it that way, they love it.
0: Well, a lot of the focus in this time of urgency has been on, you know, how do we undo the messes that we've created rather than necessarily what is this new reality that we can plan and realize? So with this approach to seeing carbon as a biological resource that can transform all parts of our modern civilization as well as our economy for the better, what do you think we need most to be able to solidify this vision and to bring this to life as soon as possible?
1: Well, I can only really speak for biochar. And I think one of our big hurdles these days is education and telling the story the right way so that you're not immediately turning people off. I see a lot of what I call evangelists, and they always <laughs> want to ring the climate change bell, and, and, and you're just losing half your audience right then and there. So I think if we can do a better job of focusing on the audience and their intended, well, not their intended, their their problems and how biochar can help them, Then, then we all do better.
0: Right. Again, going to the effective communication piece. And finally, to close, what are some of the most impactful ways that you think we as individuals can help our planet to heal its carbon cycle to one of balance and regeneration? I
1: think for the most part, it comes down to consumption habits. You know, that's where we can change our own individual and we can help trigger companies to change the way they create products. Uh, Yes, I think we need policy change, but I think we're seeing a lot of people change without policy support. So I, I think right now in our current political circumstance, that's probably
0: the best lever we have as individuals and buyers. And is there anything else we can do to support the development or use of biochar in the markets as a solution to addressing climate change and, of course, the host of other issues that it can address?
1: Well, if, if you're a farmer and you haven't used it, I would say give it a shot. Definitely uh, make sure you've read up on it a little bit before you just go out and try it. <laughs> there aren't a ton of products outside of cosmetic products that have, you know, biochar charcoal in them. So I, I would just say, go out and try to learn as much as you can. And when you have questions, there's a growing number of people out there that are ready and willing to help educate you. And then if you can help spread the word, that would be fantastic.
0: Before we go into our final five, I wanted to let you know that you can now pre-order your 2020 Green Dreamer planners at greendreamer.com slash shop with the passcode THRIVE. If you're not interested and don't need nor use physical planners, do skip this message and thank you so much for putting up with my continual updates. But if you'd like to learn more and see if the planner is suitable to your needs, I wanted to give you an opportunity to make your pre-order before I open it up publicly. Because as soon as I get the finished planners from my local bindery, I'll be shipping them out personally in the order that they're placed. You'll be able to find out all the information online, so I won't ramble on here with the details. Again, that's greendreamer.com slash shop and enter the passcode thrive to browse and make your pre-order. For now, to our final five. Let's power through. What's an uplifting social media account or publication you follow or a book that's been really profound for you?
1: The Nori Podcasts
0: what do you tell yourself to stay positive and inspired?
1: My daughter deserves to have a chance at a good life.
0: What's one thing you're working on right now for your health?
1: Learning to preserve food.
0: What are you working on right now to elevate your positive impact for our planet? All things biochar. And what makes you most hopeful for our planet at the moment? To that I would have to say biochar as well. Well, Green Dreamer, to learn more and stay updated on Kathleen's work, you can head to www.biochar-journal.org where she publishes, or her notable blog, www.fingerlakesbiochar.com. And you can also follow her on Twitter at biocharro. This will all be linked in the show notes at greendreamer.com, so make sure to reference that for all of these links. Kathleen, where can we find your book, Burn, and what additional cause to action do you have for us in terms of of how we can support you and this biochar field and your work
1: so the book is on amazon or you can buy it directly through our publisher chelsea green publishing i am part of what's called the international biochar initiative we welcome new members i host webinars on that i usually host study tours but we just came back from this year's tour in finland but if you're interested in learning more i'd say tune in become a member
0: Beautiful, well thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing your wealth of wisdom with us. What final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers?
1: Stay positive, there is hope.
0: Green Dreamer, thank you so much for tuning in. I'd like to take another moment to thank our sponsor, Osea Malibu, a skincare line founded by a family of women inspired by the sea, and that formulates botanical powered products that have shown proven results for all skin concerns. To get $10 off your first purchase of $50 or more, you can head to Oseamalibu.com slash Green Dreamer. Again, that's OSEA Malibu.com slash greendreamer. Oh, and if you're in the LA area, make sure to stop by their Osea Venice Skincare Studio for their therapeutic facials. As always, you can sign up to our weekly digest to get solutions-driven news delivered to you at greendreamer.com slash subscribe. And if you want to come say hello to let me know that you're tuning in, you can find me on Instagram at greendreamerpodcast or at Kamea Shane. As we're wrapping up here, just remember, now more than ever, our planet needs your light to thrive. So if you haven't yet, hit subscribe and I will catch you later, Green Dreamer.